Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Clanky County 911, there's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Murderers. Fascists. This is suicide television. What the hell is this show going to be? Half the population of Sweden tune in. They want to see what happened. I have a feeling that some of you may be hesitantly clicked on this because you thought all celebrity reality TV stuff, not my bag. And perhaps you thought this might be a guilty pleasure and look into a bit of Big Brother and Love Island and that stuff. And and that is going to happen today and Survivor and some of the other uh, reality TV series. But this is also, at its essence, one of the most on-the-edge episodes I've done because we learn about psychology, humanity, the, the very core of who we are and what happens when we're under the microscope in extreme environments. This is The Truman Show. Jacques Peretti is a really smart and multi-talented journalist and documentary maker, known among other things for his book, Little Bird of Auschwitz, How My Mother Escaped Death and Found Our Family. It details his investigation into his mother's time in Auschwitz in interviews he has with her while she has dementia, so it's a race against time for him to uncover the truth and piece together his family history. So as you can gather... Jacques doesn't go in for the light and fluffy topics. He's written for The Guardian, Wired and The Huffington Post and made documentaries including The Men Who Made Us Fat, The Men Who Made Us Thin and The Men Who Made Us Spend, as well as several documentaries about Michael Jackson. So there's a common thread looking at the way that greater powers manipulate us and his look at the suicides of reality TV shows is a natural extension It's what happens when that power is focused on a particular group of people in an artificial environment. He talks about the famous Milgram and Stanford prison experiments and how even they were artificial and faked. 
We consider the morality of producers who pluck humans from obscurity and flick them into a fickle fishbowl fixed by the eyes of the world. Over 40 suicides have been recorded in reality TV shows with elimination rounds. So that doesn't include, for example, the death of a man who appeared on the Jeremy Kyle show, the UK's Jeremy Springer, and other kinds of reality TV, which, says Jack, is financially propping up the entire industry. So we'll muse on vigilance, surveillance, morality, and selfishness, what it is to be human, Find Jack easily on Twitter, get his book, Little Bird of Auschwitz, and listen to his podcast, Edge of Reality, the story TV's too scared to tell. It's on Audible. I just signed up to a free trial to listen to it, so just do that and go from there. Really, really fascinating. I definitely recommend it. Coming up on this podcast are episodes about the murders of the Vatican Church, the belief in flat earth, and how to leave your psychopath. But now... You're on the edge of observable reality with Jacques Peretti. <laughs> on the off chance you say something interesting, we are recording now. Is it is it Jack or like with a soft J or is it a French Jacques? It's, well, it is. It's supposed to be Jacques, like the French way, but nobody ever bothers to pronounce it correctly. So it's good. Call me what you like. Jack's fine. Jack's fine. Jack's fine. If you can, you know, if you can be bothered to pronounce it correctly, that's how it's pronounced. So. Yeah. How often do you get the chance to do it? I'm going to go with <laughs> okay, Jacques. Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Your podcast is brilliant. I've actually just been listening to it all today and amazing. Really enjoyed it. Uh, beautifully put together and everything what got you interested it's such an obvious i'm okay, obvious question i hate i hate uh, interviewing other journalists because then i'm thinking oh he's thinking it's an obvious one. what got you onto it it's actually a good question um it's it's uh, i think uh as i say in the podcast it, it was something that i was told about a uh, sort of 10 50 almost 15 years ago really it was when the reality was starting out and just well, I worked in TV and, you know, I was making documentaries and just, it was kind of Chinese whispers, you know, people just started saying there's these really bad things happening on these shows. Um, you know, people have died. No one really knew what the truth was. They were, there was these kind of Chinese whispers as to, you know, was it somebody had killed themselves or had they been killed and it just sounded really strange and I thought as a journalist I thought in my naivety this is something that should be told this is a story that needs investigating and as soon as I did of course the shutters came down and that's when I thought wow this really needs investigating it's a red rag to a bull isn't it to tell a journalist you can't cover that story but I mean, is there a part of you that is maybe, is there an activist part of you that maybe wants to sort of see the end? Is that what you'd like, the end of reality shows? Or how do you feel about it? It's complicated, isn't it? It is, it is. I mean, I love these shows and still do, actually. I still do. I watch them obsessively. I'm tragic like that. I absolutely love these shows. Um, but, you know, I sort of also pompously believe in something called the truth you know in it kind of coming out and being told and I thought you know we're in an era now thank god um as a result of me too you know victims are being listened to and I think for a long time people were their testimony was just ignored and it's 
you know, what, you ha- what I didn't really understand when I started to look at it was that reality TV is part of a kind of much bigger machine, which is the entertainment industry. And it's, it's, as many people say on the podcast, it's the cash cow. It's too big to fail, which is why, you know, documentary is you know, funded for, it's a kind of almost a loss leader. Underlying it is this machine, this behemoth, which is behemoth, behemoth, which is reality to, yeah, I never knew, (laughs) I never knew. It's one of those, um, this thing, this big thing, which is reality TV. It's funny because obviously reality TV brings to mind like Love Island and stuff like that. But I was just thinking about myself and I did watch Love Island every now and then, I sort of every few years, I sort of, once you get hooked. But you don't necessarily think of, ones like Gordon Ramsay but that's reality TV isn't it and it's like he's screaming at people that's got to you know leave some sort of psychological mark right yeah I mean I think there's levels of it and we concentrated on um, elimination shows because the you know obviously reality involves Kardashians there's celebrity reality there's kind of just observing people following them like you know Jersey Shore or TOWIE shows like that but you know what we decided to focus on was elimination shows because that's where a lot of the real human damage you know the 41 and counting suicides have been on those shows and and we thought it was really interesting because those were the first reality shows as well. And the very first person voted off the very first reality show kills himself, you know. And I thought, well, what the hell happened there? And we investigate that in the first episode. So, you know, just to, you know, not to be down on it, you know, these shows were a remarkable thing. And I think the reason why many people found them so extraordinary, they were a real breath of fresh air when they came along. TV had always been about documentary if so-called real people were ever allowed on i mean back in the 70s they were vox pops you know they'd stop somebody in the street and say oh you know what does the man in the street or the woman in the street think let's ask them so there was always this sort of slightly patronizing looking down on people you know as though somehow they were these you know they were only allowed on tv in these very kind of limited controlled ways and reality came along and it seemed to offer this opportunity for real people to actually express themselves and for you know the likes of Jay Goody to be on TV and you thought well that's an amazing thing so you know I was suckered in as every other reality fan was by how exciting and turbocharged these shows seemed you know I suppose it's yeah it's at once uh, sort of a great equaliser but then it's also putting these people in quite a vulnerable position where we're sort of looking at them and pointing at them you know what I really like about you as a presenter in the podcast is that you don't come down too hard on uh you know either side you're not having to go too much because there was i suppose there's a danger that it almost would create its own reality show where now it's the producers we're all pointing fingers at and they're just humans as well aren't they yeah totally and i think you know i think it's up to the listener it's you know it's obviously up to the listener to decide for themselves what they think all we did was really give the testimony of those who'd been on the shows those who worked on the shows and you decide once you listen what you think i think it's you know and also we're in danger of doing basically what the reality shows do which is to manipulate the emotions of the listener or the viewer so that you're made to think in a certain way we didn't want to end up doing exactly what they do absolutely tell me 
about the first ever ones because you, you talk about two and I, I I've sort of forgotten which one was first then because there was the real world and then the but that didn't as far as I know have elimination or anything and then there was this sort of Swedish survivor one so tell me about those you know the real world I mean there's you know there's a long debate about a kind of very boring debate about what constitutes the first reality show and actually the truth is that elements of reality have been in documentaries since the 70s there was a show called The Family um, but when the real world came along that was on MTV and this was sort of early 90s um, and what it did was it sort of treated people as an experiment so it was like the idea that really you were creating this laboratory which was a flat in New York and the producers had chosen these people to be in this space to see how they would interact and what I didn't realize was actually they were not so much the real world people the people who subsequently went on to create um, Survivor which was the first show the first proper reality show they actually used laboratory experiments they actually used the psychological experience of these two guys Milgram and Zimbardo who'd done these tests in the 70s basically testing how people would conform when they were told to do ludicrous things so one of them sort of seemed to didn't in reality but seemed to be giving the people involved electric shocks and he wanted to see like if an authority figure gave somebody electric shocks or somebody sorry i'll start that again that if an authority figure told these guinea pigs human guinea pigs to give electric shocks to someone would they go through with it and these were these tests were like really extreme zimbardo did this test where he divided a group of people into prisoners and guards and tried to see what would happen if they were allowed to do what they wanted with the with the prisoners as these were really extreme experiments and people in tv started looking at these experiments thinking wow they'd make an amazing basis for a tv show but the irony was that the psychologists had stopped doing these experiments because they thought they were unethical at the very moment where tv people pick them up and think this would make a great form of TV. So, you know, TV picked up the baton. And this was sort of the background to Survivor. Survivor couldn't get made. And when I speak to, when I spoke to the, the guys who actually came up with the idea, they were saying the American broadcasters, they were the first ones they tried it on. They said, no, this is going to be really dangerous. We don't know what's going to happen when we put people in this kind of environment. They were basically scared that someone would die. And so they refused to make the show. So instead, the producers sold the show to Sweden. And in Sweden, the show was called Expedition Robinson. But basically, the rest of the world was watching this pilot series to see how it would go. And if it went well, then they would just roll it out across the world, which is what happened, but not because it went well. So... That was kind of why we decided to focus on it, because it was such an important moment. It was the birth of reality TV. I'm really interested, and, and we'll get on to whether or well, why it didn't go well in a second. I'll leave the, the listeners in some suspense, I suppose. Uh, but the Stanford prison experiment that you mentioned, um, I can't remember what the guy, what was the guy's name? Uh, Zim, Philip Zimbardo. He was the psychologist. Zimbardo. Yeah. So that and the Milgram experiment, before listening to your show, I'd already written those down as questions to ask you about. And then obviously it comes up, and I think, at the first episode. But I was going to ask it about the producers because the producers are also people who I suppose have been given a role well, I suppose that's the that's the prison experiment as well. But even as the electrocute, they're just sort of they. Ha it's like you have to. You called it tunnel vision. Um, I, I I think as well. You just have to keep producing things, and I guess do you lose sight of 
morality and stuff. Yeah, I think I think that's a really key element to this. In a way, it's almost like the biggest element, which is that TV is about fresh ideas. It's about new ideas. I mean, all media is really. It's about what can we do next? You know, we've done this. What's the sequel going to be? You know, how's the sequel going to be bigger than the than the first movie? How's Top Gun 2 going to be bigger than Top Gun 1 or whatever? Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is a great example that someone uses in the series. They said, you know, we as producers, he said it was like being scientists in Jurassic Park. You're suddenly given, given these tools and you're thinking, wow, imagine if we built Jurassic Park. What would that be like? He said, but we didn't just like Jurassic Park, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We were messing with the DNA of how shows are made with no idea of how this would mutate and spiral out of control. And that's such a great analogy because I think producers, when they saw these experiments that Zimbardo and Milgram had done, they were almost intoxicated with the idea of what was possible on TV. And, you know, one of the producers, David Glover, he puts it brilliantly. He said, we stepped into this world with with a trepidatious feeling of like, my goodness, you know, what's going to happen? We don't really know. But at the same time, we're so excited by the TV possibilities here. And so that's why these experiments were, as I say, so intoxicating for TV producers to to then uh, take on board, you know. I suppose the Truman Show would be another another good analogy. And if anyone's not watched that yet by now, I mean, they should, because what a great film uh, that is. What what are those two experiments? Because I think a lot of meaning has been derived from those two big experiments. What do they say to you about uh, humankind? Do you feel pessimistic? Or do you, what do you feel about humans? Well, what's so amazing about those two experiments is that they were both completely fake. So in reality, Zimbardo and Milgram had effectively created a drama. They they weren't proper scientists in the sense that they were carrying out an experiment to objectively find out scientifically what would happen. They knew what they wanted from the results. So, for instance, um, Milgram, he edited his... He, he created a film of these experiments and he edited it. He knew what he wanted. Zimbardo would tell the guards how to behave in certain ways, suggest things to them. So it wasn't great science. So the irony was that these so-called scientists were actually perpetrating what reality producers were going to do. They were manipulating their drama. They were creating dramas of their own. So, you know, when you ask Andrew, what um, do you learn about humanity from them? You don't learn much actually, you learn that people are very skilled at manipulating science when they want to. And I thought what was really, what we discovered or what we dug up was that actually, ironically, there was an example of um, people being on a desert island in a scientific situation. You know, in the late 60s, these Tongan schoolboys um, ran away from home and they were washed up on, uh, there was this big storm and they were basically washed up on a remote island called Atta. And this was almost like a scientist dream. It was a bunch of kids end up on an island, re- Lord of the Flies for real. They're there for 18 months. And what did they do when they were there? They didn't fight. They didn't turn into two warring factions. They cooperated. One of them broke his leg. The others nursed him back to health. When they got angry, they imposed their own timeouts so that they could walk away into the jungle, come back, 
They just, they survived by cooperating and being civil to each other. So that's what I, that's what I prefer to take away from what humans do when they're in these kind of situations, you know? They're good, they're cool. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I still think like that they don't know like my friends if we got on an island or something that'd be it you know <laughs> but I, I, I'm really pessimistic you know I, I am about about in a, I think in a good way and because I think like I think sometimes it's we don't acknowledge that we're selfish and I think in, in other you know and I think sometimes it might be nice if we do and I, I wonder this I mean a difficult question I know you speak of tunnel vision for the producers but a difficult question to ask to anybody who's really ambitious about their career would be how much of a negative impact would you be willing to accept on another person person who you don't know so that your job can really flourish that you so you do amazingly you know what what would we be willing to accept and I think I I I don't really know I guess we can't know the answer to that can we that's a brilliant question it really gets to the heart of it doesn't it I mean I think I think human beings you know you know we're talking about some basic philosophical questions here about what is the nature of the human being are we naturally 
cooperative and collaborative are we good or are we naturally evil are we the hobbesian view you know the humanity is brutal and short you know that life is about you know cutthroat beat your competitor survival of the fittest is that who we really are or are we a naturally you know cooperative you know are human beings innately good i don't think we're innate, innately anything i don't know i don't know i'm not a scientist i'm not a philosopher but i think situations and circumstances change and i think human beings act according to those circumstances and perhaps also according to who they individually are perhaps what then their inherent nature is but i think these shows set out to manipulate what we feel human beings are at different moments so they don't they they in a way they create the shakespearean panoply of goodies and baddies villains and you know people that we root for and it's that we want to see you know sometimes we want to see good people win you know sometimes we want to see bad people get their come up and sometimes we want to see bad people win it kind of just depends you know but i think what these shows do is they supply us with the ready-made cast and then they manipulate it so that we get that entertainment from that no it's it's fascinating it really is i i, I interviewed i forgot i just remembered as you were thinking as you were talking about the island before i interviewed one of the survivors for this podcast of the plane crash in uruguay in the andes and he had to eat his friends um but they also like you say they they got on and they they worked together they collaborated there were arguments but it was okay more or less some people stopped talking to each other but more for the most part it was okay but they all said to each other look if i die you can have my body to eat and that wow. kind of thing so wow that's amazing it's kind of what they used to i think i mean i did study philosophy a bit and actually there's something called log rolling which is this idea that when you're both on a log you know in a canadian rapids or something i'm trying to create a little visual picture for you there and so i me and you are on this log and we're going down the rapids it's like what's the best thing how are we both going to survive this situation if we fight it out if i think this log's mine it's not andrew's and i, I want it i'm going to have a fight with you but we're probably both going to end up in the water we're probably both going to end up dead it's better for both of us to cooperate to kind of see it through and so i think maybe just even on a selfish level people cooperate because they realize pragmatically is the best way of getting through a situation i don't know but that's maybe my feeling about it there's also game theory though isn't there and there's there i think there are certain circumstances i'd have to we'd have to have an expert in that because i don't know enough about it (laughs) me neither me neither (laughs) there's like the prisoners there's a prisoner's dilemma i don't remember what that is yeah that's right that's right this is all sounding (laughs) dimly familiar to me but uh, i i I feel terrible like i should really know these things who who remembers a single thing from like (laughs) classes the day after the exam finishes it just goes people listen to this podcast to learn stuff and the next day it's gone they've forgotten it (laughs) it's brilliant it's uh yeah you're remembering what you need to remember that's my excuse but uh it's definitely not true yeah definitely not true but i always i i often ask people i've started asking friends this and it's actually a deeply unsettling question but it's like you know it's similar to what i was asking before how many people who you don't know would you be willing to accept they just die they they wiped off the face of the planet on the other side of the world you don't know them for you to not lose you know your legs and arms or something i wonder if it's an age thing you know because as you get older you start to think you know i'm more chilled out about my career i'm not and also i'm a human being you know i don't want to see anyone suffer you know i'm not that i'm not that desperate to climb up a greasy pole that i'm not bothered about anyway in order to see other people die or get humiliated no you know somebody puts it really well 
well. You see, in a way, reality TV, one of the most fascinating episodes for me were, was the episode where we interview the producers and researchers and runners on these shows who end up feeling they, they, they have, they're the victims as much as the contestants are, you know, and they all say, you know, I did stuff that I feel really bad about now. You know, there was a guy who needed help and I just turned the other way. And just because I was working on the show, I wanted to get promoted. I wanted my bosses to like me and they feel bad, you know, 10, 15 years later, they still feel really bad as human beings about what they did. And so, you know, they're weighing up this very question that we're talking about. They're saying I could have got promoted to be the producer. And, you know, there's a kind of, um, you know, one of them talks about, he says that he's, there was a study done, I think it was at Stanford or something. He was, he said it was a study done into people who climbed up the corporate ladder, that they were sort of corporate sociopaths, you know, that at some level, maybe you need to have that kind of pathology to be able to get to the top. You know, there's the kind of, you know, it's that whole, um, you know, who had the psychopath test type stuff, you know, who's going to pass it and who isn't. And, you know, a lot of sort of CEOs have a lot more in common with serial killers than you might imagine, you know, it's kind of that, it's that vibe, you know. <laughs> it's really interesting you, you mentioned the psychopath test because John Ronson I remember talking about he had uh, what you're saying about youth he had this big rivalry with Louis Theroux back in the day and now they're both like what was that about because you're a bit older and a bit in your 20s especially I think there's so much pressure on you to succeed because it's like what are you if you're not this huge success and I guess as you get older maybe you have family maybe you have other things going on in your life and you're like ah. so you'll love you'll love this so me and John I know both of them and John did me and him did the psychopath test at the Maudsley that they give to um, serial killers we did it as oh. part of the publicity for when his book came out we thought we'd do it no way yeah it was amazing so basically you're putting out i mean we've got a moment for this something i'll tell you because it is kind of extraordinary yeah. so they've got so the maudsley they have this guy and he you know he's interviewed all you know he, he basically his job he's a he's like psychiatrist his job is to interview serial killers and determine to what degree they are genuine psychopaths as opposed to just opportunistic killers or whatever it might be and so me and John did the test. And basically what they have is they, have, they take you into a room. They have a screen there. John's sitting on one side of the screen. I was sitting on the other side of the screen. And what they do is they then show you a series of images. They wire you up. So they're wiring you up for your, your, you know, your heart rate, um, your level of, how can I put this, your level of arousal in terms of okay. the images you're about to see, if you know what I mean. Um, oh. And then they show you images. So it starts off, you know, like a cat, a kitten then they show you a plane crash then they show you some pornography then they show you another plane crash something else these these images what? flashing up yeah and then they and then they have a graph that basically determines your your results so they did this to me and john and then at the end of it they go um the, the guy comes into the room and he said oh, really interesting results so he said john you showed kind of a fairly normal human response which was you know you sort of went up and down it was sort of going like this i mean he was freaking out even before the thing started so his thing was going like this and and then he said jack but jack you know yours is really interesting it's kind of like you just flatlined through the whole thing it's like as though nothing particularly excited you or amazed you and he said that is kind of almost like a latent sociopathy he said on one level you could be a potential serial killer but he said on another level you could just be a journalist <laughs> he said you could have seen a lot of stuff and be not that bothered about it which shows you how in a way even those things are quite unreliable as a kind of baseline for but it was an amazing experience so yeah 
how did they do the arousal do they have to put like a string on your no so the yeah they put they basically they can measure how yeah they can measure how what can i say they can measure how excited you are without having to stick anything on your genitalia they can work out there but you know that arousal is you know they said with serial killers and so on it can be you know as you say sexual so yeah, I'd panic about that because there's all there's that thing, isn't there? But you, you're on the way to school and the cars, you know, when you were a teenager, the cars sort of moving up and down. And it's all, it's all in the middle of a lesson about like Oxbow Lakes. It just, you know, so what if it's at the moment they're showing me awful things of like dead cats and stuff? Now, I wouldn't I wouldn't let them do it to me. Exactly. You're freaking out. You're thinking, if I'm going to be aroused at the wrong moment, they're going to take this the wrong way. And this is that's kind of interesting in terms of, as you say, what does it really say, you know? Wow, we've travelled a long way from reality TV, but yeah, no, it's just, but you know these types of persons. It's funny because you know we spoke to a guy who was actually um, a professor of criminology and and psychopathy, and he said that he'd studied reality shows, and he said that you know basically people who apply for these shows divide fairly much into um, in terms of women. It's kind of like women get to kind of quarter life crisis, maybe about 25, 26. And they're thinking, I'm bored with my life. I might be quite successful, but I just want to try something new. So a bunch of them are just doing it because they want to do something new. A bunch are doing it because they're genuinely looking for love. And a bunch are doing it because of maybe another third, because they want to just push the brand of like, they've got a media profile, social media profile. So it's a fairly cynical, cynical, if you like, career move. So he, he said they divided to that. But the men quite a high degree of them are narcissists or they show the the line for narcissists which is they get easily angry they want to be the center of attention they take slights personally they just make great television and so you've got this combustible uh, sort of pot already that you know you're throwing all these people into and obviously it's manipulated in order to create drama so on a show like married at first sight they will they will look at the profile of and this is really dark which i didn't realize is that they will look at the profile of women who give um you know confidential medical information to a psychologist they'll say i have abuse in my history you know da da and then they will find men who have been abusive to women and they will cast them on the same show because they are looking for that drama oh my god that's that shouldn't that shouldn't happen yeah yeah legal protocols against that kind of, but i don't even know how that would look a law against such a specifically strange thing so you know for instance natasha who uh, who was one of our interviewees who was on married at first sight in australia she says you know i didn't even trust she said even when things went wrong on the show i couldn't go back to the psychologist because in my opinion she says she breached her you know her you know her client confidentiality her, you know her you know as a as a, a medical professional she felt that she couldn't trust her because of that and i think a lot of psychologists feel compromised on these shows you know the ones who especially early in the early days you know we talked to glenda gladina uh, mcmahon who was on big brother and she said you know, there was a moment where it went from observing people, from these shows being about observing human beings, to manipulating and looking for a certain type of personality type. And she said at that moment, it's like we felt like we were becoming these complicit in the shows. We were no longer there for the contestants. We were there for the producers to produce entertainment. And 
a lot of medical professionals felt very unhappy with that and said, we'll walk away, you know. But it's that area is really interesting to me, that element of it. The playing God element yeah, starts to yeah. play God. I even yeah. remember it in my own lifetime because I watched the first few Big Brothers, which were probably a little bit less invasive, and the people seemed sort of more just quite, almost dull, but it was exciting because it was relatively new. And then the people got sort of more and more well ostentatious or different and strange and and maybe psychologically vulnerable so they did some audience research channel 4 did and actually all most networks who show reality tv did is nothing special to channel 4 and they found something really amazing they found that the audience want to see the next turn of the wheel they want after these shows started happening audiences started behaving like producers they were like this is rubbish you know why aren't they doing you know something more extreme why aren't they throwing them off a cliff you know what's going on here and so i think channels felt it was almost as though everyone was in this together ratcheting up the wheel making it more extreme and it was after that that channel four made this explicit decision they said Big Brother is turning nasty. I think it was series four or series five. They basically used that phrase. They said, we're going to make it nasty for the contestants. We're going to start manipulating this thing. And so it went, as you say, from this gentle, observational, quite sweet show where you were like looking at people chatting, you know, about their lives to suddenly like, you bitch, I'm going to kill you, you bastard, I'm going to do this to you. You know, that whole ramping up of it came because they felt they needed to do that it's insane and and like there was there was an idea a friend of yours had for something called the net which is almost sort of the opposite of what's happening with the suicides and stuff and i thought that was an amazing idea but i mean almost (laughs) impossible to make but certainly impossible to make yeah so he's this i mean he is great um sort of tv genius really david glover his name is and he was there right at the beginning. Um, He kind of did a show called The Tourist Trap, which was before Big Brother or anything, and it got noticed by all these people who were developing reality shows. And he was sort of doing what they wanted to do. He was putting cameras, fixed cameras, in a controlled setting and then observing people. In that case, in his case, it was these tourists. Um, And it got him onto the radar of the shows, and he was offered the job of producer on Big Brother, he turned it down because he'd heard about this death on an early show. He didn't really know the details, but he just felt uncomfortable. And at that same time, he was working at Channel 4, where ideas were becoming ever more extreme. And there were these crazy ideas. There was a show called Fat Front Door, which was basically, we're going to build a house around someone obese, and then they're going to have to lose weight in order to get out the house, and then they win the money. These shows that were kind of sort of awful, the kind of an awful idea, but you can imagine people watching it. And he came up with this idea called the net because he'd seen the bridge which was this feature doc about people jumping off the golden gate bridge and he thought it was unethical that the producer had not intervened in truth actually they had intervened in some cases david didn't know that but it was interesting the ethical position that the people who made that documentary were in and anyway david felt that there was a a chance to make a show that would be both kind of amazing and groundbreaking but also positive um so his idea was to put a net under a well well-known suicide spot and to essentially catch people um, and they would then the show would then try to prove to them that life was worth living that was essentially the idea i mean it's kind of like 
insane on lots of levels and it breaks lots of <laughs> things that are probably but on another level it was a kind of I suppose in a way psychologically it was almost like David was thinking I'm speaking for him he's not here but I know him well enough to think he was thinking these shows are kind of dark and wrong you know and maybe there's a way to do something positive with the, with with this type of format you know it's kind of like it's a wonderful life if you think about it it's like that film it's a wonderful life the moment on the bridge when the angel comes and says to the guy you don't have to do this you know life is amazing and as you find out suicide there are no suicidal people there's no such thing there's just moments that we all go through as human beings that they're, they're a moment that passes there are as one psychologist put it really well to me there are contributing factors and they add they add up they can add up to something or they don't and it's as random as that you know and so you know anyway that was david's idea they're kind of interesting what what an idea what an idea <laughs> i would watch that and you're completely right i mean for, for all the and i know why people say oh but it has so many moral and ethical issues but at the end of the day i mean if the worst thing that can happen is someone can suicide well, they're going to do that anyway and you're stopping them and as you say it is an opportunistic thing suicide isn't it i remember i was reading malcolm gladwell writing about that he writes all about the statistics around when people are stopped from doing it in a particular time and place they often don't go back and do it again it's about the place or the moment more than it is about what they necessarily want to do 100 percent, and it's all about if you look on i mean without being too morbid but you know it's like you have to appeal to human beings in that moment i mean i was in down in you know place where people do is that very picturesque spot um overlooking the sea and it's also a place where people do sadly commit suicide and there was a sign up and it said think about your family how are they going to feel and it's interesting because that taps into some psychology that was done at glasgow university into what motivates human behavior you know when they were trying to stop people from smoking or doing something like that they found that there's no good appealing to people's altruism or to or even to themselves even to their own health because they're too far gone say you're addicted to smoking what they said is how's how are your kids going to feel when you're no longer here how are they going to feel how are your parents going to feel and somehow that cuts through do you know what i mean it it cuts through to people and it's sort of like it's almost like finding that thing anyway it's uh, it's interesting it, no, it really, it really is, and, and it shows how how involved reality TV and reality TV concepts are in our psychology. Why, why Sweden? And you did you touch on this in the podcast? Why Sweden for the first one um, in particular with their mindsets, and, and then also go on and tell me uh, what happened with with that Survivor esque um, series? Yeah, so it was an amazing moment. So basically, there was a new controller of the state um, the state channel. Or she was she'd become this new exec and she was told to come in and shake things up so in a way the swedish tv network was prepared for a new idea in a way that in america these execs are very risk adverse they're quite conservative in their decision making they weren't prepared to take the risk but she was and the guy who sold the show to her his name's gary carter is this amazing <laughs> kind of character of tv amazing he sold all sorts of shows like pop idol and it's a big player um he said you know sweden's a really interesting place he says you know it has this sort of on the surface this flatness this conformity this democratic progressive vibe but he said when you scratch the surface and he said when you get a few swedes drunk and he goes that's not very hard to do because when you get a few swedes drunk they basically show their 
their sort of ruthless entrepreneurial cutthroat side so it's almost as though this society on the one level it's this one thing but underneath it's something completely different and if you expose that on a tv show you're going to find something really interesting and so sweden was in a way perfect (laughs) for the birth of reality tv you know and so what they did was they launched this show what they cast shall I say first they cast this show and they're looking for quote unquote a diverse cast and what they mean by that is a kind of cross-section of Swedish society so you've got successful business persons then you've got um, this guy who you've got this Sikh air steward brilliant guy who we interview Marcus who's on it you get a housewife you know the usual kind of uh, array um and one of one of the contestants is this guy called Sinisa Savija he's a Bosnian refugee so he hasn't been in Sweden very long he's cut he goes on the show because he's a really quiet guy he wants to start his own business um and he thinks in his sweetly in his naivety thinks it'd be good opportunity for Swedish society to see you know, a refugee making it in Swedish society and being kind of like a very upstanding citizen. So he goes on the show in good faith, thinking it'll be a good experience. And he's shocked by, he tells his wife subsequently, he's the first person voted off. He doesn't really know why he's voted off. And actually, when you talk to the contestants, as we do in the podcast, they didn't really want to vote him off. They just said, this is the game. You know, someone's got to be voted off first. They said he's just quiet. You know, he's quiet. He doesn't do much. He's a nice bloke, you know. So he gets voted off. He quietly walks away. But then in the period of time between him being voted off, he flies home uh, back to Sweden. And in the period of time between him flying home and the show is going to air, it starts sort of festering, I think, for him, this idea that he's been voted off. He becomes fearful about how he's going to be portrayed, how he's going to be edited. He says to his wife, you know, I'm I'm worried that they're going to edit out all the good bits and make me look like this bad person. And he starts worrying about what this is going to mean for him and what it's going to mean for other refugees, actually, who have come to Sweden. And what we were talking about, contributing factors build up for him he didn't have any history of mental health issues nothing like that and he this is a month or two before the show's due to air he takes his life his own life and you know these (laughs) the fear that the u.s networks had we're not going to do this show because someone could die on one of these shows turns out to be realized this fear with the very first person voted off And the networks now have a decision, which is, are they going to junk this whole thing? I mean, a tragedy has taken place. Show hasn't even been shown yet. But, you know, the cynical out there amongst you might think, this is also a really good opportunity. Because the tabloid press in Sweden are onto this thing. They start calling the Swedish network, you know, murderers fascists they say this is suicide television what the hell is this show going to be that's about to start it starts generating massive publicity so when they decide they think okay we're going to go ahead and we're going to broadcast this show 
half the population of Sweden tune in to watch it because they want to see what happened. And so the show becomes this massive success. Probably not in any small part to what happened to Sinisa. And then, of course, the show is commissioned in America, goes on, is renamed Survivor, goes on to become this machine. But, you know, the human damage is there at the very start. And it's kind of, you know, it's one of the reasons why it takes off. So kind of really... Yeah, really interesting. I yeah, think. really sad. I mean, Sinisa, as far as we know, had no suicidal thoughts before appearing on this, I, I imagine. No, he, you know, a lot of, you know, I, I, I balk at, you know, drawing any crude causal links because, as we've said, you know, suicide is massively complex. You know, you should really have a professional talk. You know, I'm not a professional, but I've talked to a lot of professionals in making this series. And, and you know... A lot of people who go into reality TV, some of them have mental health issues, which is maybe the reason why they might have applied. Lots don't. And lots of those who've taken their own lives didn't appear to have anything. So, you know, how you connected with the show? You know, what I what I think is that sometimes vulnerable people are taken, they're on the edge. There's a series called Edge of Reality. They're on the edge. And in a funny way, not in a funny, in an awful way, they go onto these shows and these shows kind of push them over the edge. So, you know, they add contributing factors. And what we say in the conclusion of our series is that as responsible filmmakers, producers, they've got a duty to the people who appear on these shows to minimise what those contributing factors should be, not maximise them, push them over the edge in the way that they do. And that's, that was sort of our conclusion, really. I mean, are we all responsible because we're watching and we're probably more likely to watch it the more on the edge they are? I mean, I know Love Island famously sort of the last week is is seen as boring. People turn off because everybody's all coupled up. There's no more arguing and stuff. So they're in a bit of a bind, the producers, I suppose. They want to make it as exciting as possible uh, so people watch it. I think it's I think it's really complex as to, you know, it gets to the heart of what do we find entertaining as human beings? What do we find entertaining? I think we do find we find conflict entertaining, but we also find, you know, uplifting aspirational things. One of the most successful things on YouTube uh, is basically teenagers opening boxes. Right. That is like the biggest thing is like opening a box and seeing a present. And it's 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 just, you know, if you want to talk about reality TV, you know, the the frontier has now moved on to social media, you know, in a way reality TV is quite old fashioned because it's not it's not doing that thing that's now going on on YouTube, you know, with YouTube stars and so on. But, you know, I don't think I think the challenge and I'd put it out there for program makers is bust out of that box you know that you've been in for the last 15 years don't make the same show that you've been making but just try and ramp up and make it more extreme do something different do something wildly different because i think human beings we want every kind of entertainment and there's no reason why reality reality tv does also do that it also does show people very sweet moments it shows people being cooperative it shows people in all sorts of different situations and i think there's something just about the very cynical way that the wheel is ratcheted. You know, there is another way to make TV. It doesn't have to be like that. 
And I think lots of other shows have demonstrated that. I mean, there are some great shows, you know, like shows like Drag Race, Queer Eye, you know, lots of shows, Little People, which was, you know, about dwarfs. And, you know, it's actually, they, that looked like a really exploitative show. You would think, oh my God, like the worst kind of thing. It's fantastic because the people on it are superb and there's very little reference. There's no humiliating them. They're just getting on with their lives. And, you know, Queer Eye shows are completely, you know, there are lots of ways in which reality TV shows all kinds of, it's a window on Alaskan trawler men, ice truckers, God knows what, you know, every conceivable kind of community can be represented and has been. And so I'm not down on reality as a genre at all. I think it's an amazing way of showing us other people living their lives, you know. But I just think there's something particular about the elimination kind that can do things to human beings. And the way people are manipulated, I suppose, as well to be in to to not be the whole point of reality is that they're you're seeing their real lives. You talk about those ice trucker people; they are just being followed, living their lives, and it's an extreme kind of life that that's really interesting to us. Whereas, I guess uh, you know, Love Island is not how these people really are in those weeks that they're there. Jeremy Kyle well, it was another. That, I mean, that's of the forty suicides you talk about. I mean, that's not that wouldn't even count because that's not an elimination thing, is it, Jeremy Kyle? Yeah, no, it isn't, and it's interesting. I mean, the Kyle. You know, Kyle is a very particular, you know, it was a Jerry Springer style talk show where you had, a, you know, it always sailed very close to the edge because of the nature of the, the people it had on and the way that, and actually, ironically, as a lot of people in TV would say, it had a, a duty of care, which was quite, in some ways, quite robust because of what they'd been dealing with for so long. But, you know, that guy... Um, Steve Diamond, who took his own life, you know, he failed the lie detector test. It, it was wrong. He didn't, you know, he, he said in his suicide note that he hadn't cheated and he, the show humiliated him on the show. And so that's why. And they took Kyle off because I think to some degree, and this is my own opinion, I don't, I don't really know. I'm not a ITV executive, but I think to some degree, a lot of people in TV felt very, um, they felt dirty about that show. You know, that show was so horrible, unrelentingly horrible in the way that it, it portrayed people and working class people. You know, there was something very particular about the way it humiliated a socioeconomic group who are already finding it tough in life without having to be further humiliated on TV. So there was something doubly awful about it. But I think they weren't too bothered about losing that show. You know, it was a daytime show and they didn't like it anyway, I don't think. And Love Island, by comparison, is a cash cow. It's a massive show. It's sold all over the world. You know, the deaths on that show, um, you know, there was no way they were going to axe that show. And so, so they didn't. Um, and, you know, those things happened at the same time. But it was complex, very, very complex. And you know, one of the people who took her life on, on, um, as a result of the Jeremy Carl thing was one of the producers, Natasha Redican. And, you know, it was tragic. She couldn't get work after that show was, and the people who worked on that show felt deeply upset about what had happened. They'd lost their jobs, but they'd also been part of a trauma, kind of collective trauma. So horrible for everyone involved, you know? 
Yeah, it's so easy to judge, isn't it? And, you know, what what tends to happen is, you know, if you know someone who's just finished university or whatever it might be, and then you get offered a job on any show, you know, you just want a job. Everyone's desperate for jobs. You're told that when you're 21, 22 years old that you're not going to get one. So as soon as you got one, and I had that to an extent, I got a job at The Sun, uh, which is a newspaper for, you know, Americans. It's a tabloid newspaper, and it's, it's really uh, morally, well, I suppose, repugnant, isn't it? And my job... Uh, was I, apart from writing articles and stuff at night, uh, I, was in, I was working at night, I had to upload the page three model, which was uh, a model who had her breasts out, to an iPad, the iPad version, so you could twist her around. And from the start, I said, well, should we be doing this at the Sun? And I did push, and they have stopped doing it, not, obviously, not that I had enough impact. I was just a young, you know, no one listened to me. Um, but it was just a job. I, I needed the job when I was 21. And if someone had committed suicide because of something I'd done, I think you're right in saying that, you know, these people who work on these shows a lot of the time are victims themselves. They, they sort of just get caught up in it. I think it's an I mean, you know, a lot of these people who we investigate and talk about in our podcast, they're people I know, people I've worked with, they're friends of mine. You know, there's people, they're good people. They're not bad people. You know, they don't, the last thing they would want to think is that what they do up you know causes damage but it's almost it's it's quite interesting that um the reason if you go back to what we were talking about at the beginning the milgram zimbardo experiments so why did they happen to begin with do you think do you know what do you know what the basis of why they actually wanted to do those experiments was so the background was the albertite was the eichmann trial so oh. basically eichmann who was being had been caught by mossad a nazi had been put on trial argentina. yeah had been caught in argentina taken on trial put on trial um in israel and psychology became fascinated with the idea of can good people do evil can you make good people do something can you do some tell them to just follow orders in eichmann's famous phrase I was just following orders. You saw him in the court. He was like the most boring clerk, bank manager guy. He didn't look, he didn't have horns. He didn't look like a devil. He didn't look like an evil person. And, you know, in that famous Hannah Arendt um, article about, uh, or book about the Eichmann trial, she says, she coins the phrase, the banality of evil. And she says that evil isn't this. It doesn't come at you with fangs. It's, it's banal. You know, it's, it's just happens. The administration of terror is what Eichmann was part of. And I mean, I'm not saying that reality TV is the same, but there's something going on that happens in any, not just TV, but in any organization where there's somehow a kind of mobilization of evil, that somehow it just happens as part of the administrative process, that there isn't one person, there isn't a bogeyman, there isn't some nasty person, that a channel making us do these things. It just happens as part of a process. And isn't it fascinating that the whole root of reality TV that came through Zimbardo, that came through Milgram, was itself based on trying to understand Eichmann and the banality of evil, that good people can do bad. The people, a lot of listeners are going to love that because a lot of uh, a lot of these episodes, probably most of them nowadays, are on sort of cults and extreme ideologies and people who've gone too far one way or the other, and just yeah, I think those are two two of the main lessons. One of them is that it is often that you know the banality of evil, and and the other one is that really intelligent people can still fall for 
you know whether it be a cult or an ideology or 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 into producing a tv series that has some really horrible and unsavory results and you just go along with it day by day and then before you know it you've you've been part of something that's well in, in a sense committed atrocities obviously you know as you say not the same level as the nazis or anything like that but some of the stuff is you know human motivation and you know what motivates us and what makes us you know it's 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 a really interesting area i listen to the um the the q anon um podcast that gabriel um uh, gatehouse did i thought it was interesting you know they had a guy on who was fascinating um talking about the birth of QAnon, and he said that we live in a world now where he said you know news has gone truth has gone objectivity has gone no one believes any of those things anymore they just believe the narrative the narrative they want to believe and he said it's a bit like we all live in a, a kind of multiplex cinema where when we when we want to consume a bit of news or understand something, instead of the one screen which we're all watching in the old days, we go into our own different screen that we want to watch. So we go into Cinema 1 or Cinema 2. And if you're liberals, you'll all go into Cinema 1. And if you're QAnon followers, you'll go into Cinema 2. And you watch a movie and it's got this, every screen is showing the same characters and kind of the same plot but it's been written in a completely different way in each cinema. And it's a, that's the kind of world we live in. We live in this world of multiple narratives and, you know, and in a way, you know, in a way reality TV was sort of ahead of the time, you know, it was kind of, you know, again, being down on it, you know, all documentary is a form of manipulation. You choose what you watch, you know, you choose which edit to use, you choose which cutaway to use. You're manipulating the audience. You know, I'm manipulating the audience a bit with my podcast. And that's kind of my next one is going to be about that, the nature of what storytelling is and how you can manipulate people. And it's, yeah, and it's about that. It's, and it's kind of using the true crime space to kind of understand how those shows are made and how we are complicit as program makers, but also as all, as the audience, it really plays with that. I won't give too much away, but I'll come back and discuss that, you know, and I think, you know, the first documentaries ever made, you know, Robert Flaherty, like man of Aaron in the forties, right? He basically takes a bunch of Irish fishermen. This is supposed to be like uh, upheld as the great piece of documentary filmmaking, right? He basically casts all the fishermen because they look photogenic. He invents the family. He shows them sh uh, fishing for basking sharks, which didn't even had stopped 40 years earlier. Iojima, the capture of Iojima, right? The famous flag where it's planted, you know, when the Japanese finally surrender. That photograph was staged. You know, they used, they put the soldiers in the right position so it looked heroic. It had actually, you know, every moment that we regard as a sort of news, you know, as sacred, as an objective moment has been manipulated or staged or in some way controlled, you know. So I think, you know, it sort of gets to the heart of what is truth. What is the truth that we want to see? And, you know, I think reality does that. And in some ways, reality is more honest because it just says there isn't a truth. There's just our manipulation of... <laughs> of the footage you know there's something deeply <laughs> honest about that in a way in my um do documentary about exorcism for the bbc i made this uh, exorcist this nutter exorcist right and at the end of the film he like locks me in a room and i thought he was going to kill me it was out in the middle of nowhere in argentina wow uh, at midnight and, and we hadn't sold the documentary to the bbc yet i was just me and my friend uh, my own david i was thinking you had a david i've got a david my friend david hayes the director and because i'd i sort of suggested that he was um sleeping with the women he exercised because he was and he went berserk and i thought he was going to kill us 
and we ended up getting out. We had to climb over loads of like people. But I haven't mentioned it was a big mass he was doing with like thousands of people there. So they're all frothing at the mouth, falling over each other, and that. And we had to like escape and get out. And we got out and we got to like a taxi. And then David said to me, "Oh, you know what? I had the cap on the camera as oh, you were leaving." Man. So we, I was like, "Well, we're not going back in there because it's <laughs> going to kill us." He was then on the stage like shouting, "Like the devil has left the house, the devil!" If he, you know, so we thought, I, I said, "We're not going back." And Dave, you know, you know how directors are. He was just like, "No, no, we have to. We, we can't ha- end without you leaving the thing." So we had this big sort of argument back and forward because I was like, "Mate, we're getting out," because I was shaking. And he made he made me go back in. So we had to like go around the corridor hoping the exorcist wouldn't see us climbing over bodies again. And then he films me leaving. And again, it's what you said, the manipulation, because obviously people would think that was just me leaving. I'm looking all scared again, like, oh God, this is this <laughs> argument's just happened. The argument was half an hour ago. But it's part he, of it. Did isn't he it? spot you? Did the guy spot you? No, because he was like he's like it's almost like we're walking along a corridor, and then there, there, there are these open <laughs> sort of doors from the corridor to the bit where he's doing his mass on stage yeah, yeah. and he's screaming over and over the devil has been here tonight and he's screaming about the Falklands because we're English and he's in Argentina he was, so he's going you know they took our islands they took this and we're going oh my god and we're sort of creeping over people <laughs> and some of the clergy sort of saw us and we're like please don't dob us in <laughs> and just about got out of there by the skin of our teeth but oh brilliant that fake that fake spontaneity yeah that we have to all do um, that's uh, I know. oh yeah the noddies yeah. Yeah. Do, you know the noddies. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's oh. just—I mean, it's—I uh, mean, exactly as you. I once—I used to do these documentaries for the Beeb. Um, I did a thing called "The Men Who Made Us Fat," which was all about the, the you know, about the food industry. And, and what was amazing was I had to interview um, this woman who ran. Uh, she was a representative for Coke, uh, Coca-Cola, and I'd interviewed her about three or four times for different films and. She was always wheeled out as the kind of, you know, the spokesperson. And I would always get worked up. But the thing was, and I would have to say, you know, you've done this, you've done that. Look what you did here. And she would say, yes, but you've got to understand that it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this sort of happened three or four times. So by the fourth time I interviewed her, we kind of got on quite well. It was a sort of awful <laughs> thing where we'd sit down and you'd have a chat beforehand and you'd say, you know, how are you? And she'd say, and then she knew I had kids and she'd say, how are your kids? And I thought, oh God, this is awful. It's like, she's being really nice. And I've got to like, and it would literally be like, roll, turn over. And I'd say, so I put it to you, madam, you know, and she'd be like, oh, like, and then it would end. It'd be nothing personal. Just like, oh, you know, your kids, you know, I hope they're well and oh. you know and all this but, uh, it's kind of you know it's the game isn't it it's the awful game that that is played and uh yeah i can remember i did this is by the by but I'll, i remember my first job as a researcher in news and i filmed it was it was like a thing about an oil spill and they had this guy from the oil company coming on and i just thought you evil bastard you know look what you've done i was like 21 thinking god this is terrible and then we had someone on from an eco you know it was like not greenpeace but someone like that to kind of do the other side and they were in the studio and the and he was saying it's just it's just disgusting what you've done here and the the oil guy goes yeah well you know and then afterwards they were in the green room the hospitality room having a drink and i could see them chatting and the guy goes the guy from the oil company says to the green the uh, eco guy goes that was really good you know you did really i thought you were really fired up you know and then he said you know we could really do with someone like that um at the (laughs) at the oil company 
just to kind of, you know, when we have events like this, you know, accidents, you know, and you know, the guy took his card. And I thought, I thought that was a really, for me, that was a really instructive moment in terms of understanding how, how it works, you know. Not bad, yeah. Was the card made of plastic? <laughs> Recycled. <laughs> Recycled uh, people. <laughs> from somewhere Man. yeah that i think that's a, le- a, a lesson we all sort of go through isn't it particularly as journalists you have to and and i, I for me it was the the crazy baby lady who's this woman who throws like plastic fetuses at women trying to get abortions again it was in latin america and i was go- you know i was trying to cop i'd obviously grown up watching louis through so i was trying to sort of do that like go on the school run with her and like hang out with her and i just loved her and i was a bit very pro-choice and i look back and i regret it because i was a bit maybe self-righteous because I was a bit younger you know so I was really putting a lot of stuff to her and we actually fell out in the end which was such a shame because I loved her because she was like could be an aunt or a grandma you know and you, you all everyone listening now is an aunt or a grandma or, an, or a grandpa or a cousin who, who has views very different to theirs she thinks we're killing babies like you know so yeah I know I know something, see there's something about people and they have genuine sincere beliefs and TV people or media people come in with their craven, nasty, hollow-eyed cynicism, where they're just, we're really all the same in that we're about the story and like, we want the best bit of sync, we want the most extreme opinion to be held. And sort of, and and we talk about this in the podcast a lot, actually, because a lot of the producers, they need to befriend, you know, obviously you have to befriend and you have this relationship that might last six months or a year or however long the show is on for. And it's a one-way thing because the contestants or participants, they believe that the producer is their friend. They think you've been nice to me. You know, you call me at the night, you see how I am. And then suddenly it's just like, bang, the guillotine comes down. The end of the show, you're off. You're on to the next victim, shall I say, your next contestant. And these poor people are like, Wow, I thought you were my friend. I always thought there'd be some amazing show to be made where you basically get all the contestants who've been dropped to just endlessly harass and follow the people who first persuaded them to be on the show and say, no, I'm going to be in your life now. You know, you were in my life for six months. I'm going to be in your life and see how you like it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a great idea. Where, where can where can people find, because it's on Audible, isn't it? Is that where yeah. they can find the podcast? Yeah, so it's on Audible. There's a paywall, but you can uh, find ways of, uh, I don't know... <laughs> listening to it i think it's yeah it's on audible and uh, it's called edge of reality and uh, please do listen i think it's kind of it's 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 surprise people i think i think it's surprise people so take a listen see what you think i think it's brilliant and and i can say it because you'll get in trouble but yeah go to audible.co.uk and then just get a free trial because that's what i did and then cancel it after you've listened to the podcast so <laughs> or, or keep listening to it if you like all the other audible <laughs> stuff but none of it's as good as jack's podcast that's edge of reality the story tv's too scared to tell really really good thank you for being on on this edge oh pleasure it's a pleasure andrew uh, absolutely loved it and uh, i'll be back i'm going to force you i'll be like one of those contestants i'm going to force myself back onto your show Thank 
thank you, Jacques, for gracing the stage of the On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast. What a relief and pleasure it is when a guest is so willing and so able to venture beyond the topic at hand and into the murky realms of philosophy. I had a really great chat, really, really enjoyable. Make sure to listen to the full series, Edge of Reality, the story TV's Too Scared to Tell on Audible. Just get a free trial and go from there. That's what I did. Coming up on this podcast, as I said at the beginning, are episodes about the murders of the Vatican Church, the belief in flat earth, and how to leave your psychopath. That's all for now. I'll see you next time. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.